All right, Psalm 103 tonight. Psalm 103. We'll talk about an awesome psalm to read through together. I'm looking forward to reading this one and studying this one with you tonight. And we talk a lot about the importance of knowing God more. And we say, if you just know God more, everything changes. And, and perhaps that claim is sometimes met with skepticism on your part. Like, will that really make a difference? Just know God more. I feel like I already know Him. I mean, I've heard about Him all my life. Uh, I've been to Sunday school. Uh, it feels like it doesn't make as much of a difference as you claim that it does. I don't know if you've ever thought that in your own mind. Maybe not said out loud. Uh, but my prayer is that as we read through Psalm 103 you see just how much of a difference knowing God deeply, who He is, makes in your life. What we're going to do is we're going to read through it. And then what I want to do after I read through it is I'm going to ask if you had to take one verse or one line out of this psalm and that's what you put in your pocket and took with you for the rest of the week, which one would it be? All right, so be thinking about that as we read through Psalm 103 together. We'll begin with prayer, and then we'll read together. Lord, thank you for your word again. Thank you for bringing us to it. Thank you for the opportunity to dig into it and to feast on it and to apply it to our lives. I pray that you would guide us as we look in your word, that we would be changed by it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west... So far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it's gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting to those who fear him in his righteousness, to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all the places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. If you were to take one verse or one line from Psalm 103 and put it in your pocket and take it with you for the rest of the week, which one would you choose? Linda.
And you have to say that to yourself all the time, right? <laughs> I love it. And we talk about this, but just... We, we have to remind ourselves of that. We have to tell ourselves, bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Very good. Stephanie. Um, verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all when things seem out of control and crazy. Yeah, what a comfort. His rule is established in the heavens. Good. Yes. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Mm. What a comfort. <laughs> he, we, we look at our sins and, and we know what we deserve. And to think that God does not deal with us as our sins deserve. What a comfort. John. Well, as far as the east is from the west, so far as mm-hmm. the such a, it's, it's hard to grasp, right? Um, and we'll look at that as we get into it, but what a wonderful truth that, that is. Anything else? Paul. Verse 17. Another incomprehensible analogy, just like the far, as far as the east is from the west, his steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting. Well, how do you measure that? You can't, right? Good. Well, this is an incredible psalm, one that magnifies God and his goodness, and I can't wait to to dig into it with you. We're going to begin in the first two verses where there's this invitation to bless the Lord, and who is invited to bless the Lord? Himself, right? Bless the Lord, O my soul. What else does he tell his soul to do? Right, so he tells himself, bless the Lord, says that three times in these verses, bless the Lord, bless his holy name, and forget not all his benefits. This invitation is repeated again and again, and then added to it in verse 2, this invitation to remember, to forget not. You know, sometimes the psalmist will invite others to praise the Lord. Everyone, all creation, join in praise with me. Um... And other times he just invites himself to praise and bless the Lord. And you know what? I think this is a reminder to me. Praise is not always natural. Isn't that true? If it was, we wouldn't have to tell ourselves to do it, right? You wouldn't have to say, bless the Lord, O my soul, because it just comes naturally to you. Sometimes it comes natural. Sometimes your heart pours out in praise to God. Other times you have to tell yourself to bless the Lord. Why do we have to tell ourselves to forget not his benefits? Because we forget a lot. You have to consciously exhort yourself to rehearse the goodness of God. You must consciously and intentionally exhort yourself not to lose sight of and forget all the benefits that God has given you. Is the... the, The old classic song, right? Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. Why are these, why these two things? Praising and remembering. As we mentioned, it's because it's so easy to forget. In fact, if you look at the Old Testament and you see the children of Israel going from Egypt through the wilderness and then about to enter the promised land, you know what God tells them again and again and again? When you enter, this is what's going to happen. You are going to be, have bountiful supply. You're going to be blessed. You're going to, lives are going to be great. And in that moment, what? Don't forget. Don't forget. 
We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. It says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Isn't it ironic that one of the the biggest things that causes us to forget God's benefits are enjoying his benefits. He gives us all these things, and it's our enjoyment of those things that forget, that cause us to forget God's benefits, his goodness. We see this later in Deuteronomy 8, verses 10 through 11. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land that he's given you. And take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. This connection between forgetting God and disobeying his word is a very interesting connection. What's the clearest sign that we have forgotten all his benefits when we don't follow him? And actually, that means that following Jesus is primarily driven by recognizing his benefits towards you. We follow him as we remember what he has done and who he is. And so if we are called to forget not all his benefits, what are his benefits? Does he tell us? Oh yeah, he definitely tells us. Verses 3 through 5, he doesn't leave it up to the imagination. He gives us a list of benefits that God has given us. Forget not all his benefits. And you see, each one begins with who? Who, 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 who? All right? So that is, that wasn't my best owl impression. I'm just showing you the pattern. All right? So all his benefits. And then each line describes a benefit. What has he done? He has forgiven. He heals. He redeems. He crowns. He satisfies. Let's consider just some general observations from this list of benefits. This first set of three, he forgives, he heals, he forgives all your iniquity, he heals all your diseases, he redeems your life from the pit. You know what I see here? I see mercy. And then the next two, I see grace. What's the difference between mercy and grace? Mercy is the idea of compassion, right? He's rescuing us. He is, he is not giving us what we deserve. He's forgiving us. He's restoring us. Grace is that unmerited favor, just an overflow of his goodness toward us. And so he shows his mercy and his forgiveness and his healing and his redemption. And then he, he doesn't stop there. He continues to crown us and to satisfy us. And as we consider these benefits, what do we bring to the table? Can you find what we bring to the table? We bring, we bring actually a lot of things. What are they? Iniquity, diseases. A life in the pit, right? We can put that in there. All right. You can even say that, you know, it, it, your youth is renewed but like the eagles. In other words, we're weak. Okay, so that's what we bring. And it's a lot, right? All, all. What does God bring to the equation? 
He brings forgiveness. He brings healing, redemption. He brings steadfast love. He brings mercy. He brings goodness. What a deal, huh? What benefits? Let's dig into some of these benefits. Number one, God forgives all your iniquities. Why is this the first one listed? It's where it starts, right? This is the first of his benefits. It's our sin that separates us from God. So, so he forgives. Is forgive in the past tense or the present tense? It's in the present. This is a, a continual characteristic of God. He is a God who is always forgiving. And he's always forgiving all your iniquity. And as we highlighted later on in this psalm, he's going to talk a little bit more about what that forgiveness looks like and how absolute that forgiveness is. But what's the benefit of God? He forgives all your iniquity. Do you believe that? Who heals all your diseases. Now, here's a question. In our sin-cursed world, and we, we, we know of situations right now, Rick Cobb and others that are dealing with sickness, with, a, with brokenness, how do, we, how do we measure that? How, how do we see this phrase and line it up with what we experience in our lives? How, in what ways does he heal all our diseases? Maybe some. All? What do you think? How, how should we take this phrase? Rebecca. So, Rebecca mentioned that sometimes, what, I mean, at the, end of the, at the end of the book, right? What does he say? He will wipe away all tears from our eyes. He will, he will sin and sorrow and death will be no more. That we can say that, there's, that this healing of all our diseases is part of his ultimate plan while we don't see it all right now. Spurgeon says something interesting about this line. And he connects it actually with the first one right here. He forgives all our iniquity and heals all our diseases. He says this, when the cause is gone, iniquity, the effect ceases. So sin is brought into the world. And what results from sin? The curse, sorrow, sickness, death. What does God promise to do? Forgive all of our sin. Forgive all our iniquities. And when you remove the, the cause, then the effect ceases as well. Now, there is a difference here. The forgiveness of sin is immediate and absolute, while the effect of sin will ultimately be healed at the end of all things. But it is not there yet. So why not make the healing as immediate as the forgiveness? One commentator I read said, put it this way. That sin can ruin the relationship with God and must be dealt with immediately. But suffering can actually deepen the relationship, which is why God may not heal immediately. He will heal ultimately. He has promised that. But there are times in our life when the diseases, the suffering, is actually what God uses to bring us closer to himself, to show us more of himself. But God is a forgiving God. He heals us. Next in verse 4, who redeems us, redeems our life from the pit. What does the word redeem mean? Anyone 
know what that word means? Buy back. Very good. Redemption is the idea of buying back. So God buys us back from the pit. This is, this is, this is the valley of death. This is, this is the miry clay. And God buys us back. It's something that has claim on us. Our sin and our iniquity has brought us there. And we find ourselves in the pit of destruction. But God pulls us out. He buys us back from the clutches of death. Psalm 40 verse 2 says, He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. And he set my feet on a rock, making my footsteps firm. So there's his mercy. He forgives, he heals, he redeems. And that would be good enough. If he stopped there, we're in a good spot. But God's grace is so vast, his love is so infinite, that he piles on top of his mercy his immeasurable grace. And we see the next benefit in the list. God crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Now, when you see the word crowning you, what is that communicating? When you crown someone, what are you doing? You're you're honoring them. You're honoring them. Why in the world would God honor someone whom he has just rescued from the clutches of sin and death? They did nothing. And yet he, he bestows honor on us, and he honors us with two of his attributes. And what are those two? Steadfast love and mercy. There's the hesed again. The covenant love, the loyal love. So this this steadfast love is the idea of commitment to you. And mercy, do you know what this word means? Sometimes you might see it as tender mercy or compassion. This This very word carries with it the idea of Genuine feeling. Feeling. God has a feeling of love toward you. Have you ever seen the, the love of God in just kind of robotic terms? Right? He loves us because he's love. That's who he is. He died for us. He loves us. I know he loves us. The Bible says he loves us. And yeah, he loves us. Right? And it's just very kind of academic and it's, and it's, and it's robotic. This word in and of itself points to something far greater far more real and significant than some type of robotic love, or even just a commitment, a steadfast love. It talks about tender mercy, a feeling of love, a genuine disposition of affection. That's what God has for you. So while steadfast love speaks of commitment, tender mercy speaks of genuine feeling. I mean, think of a marriage, right? You want both commitment and feeling, right? Someone could be committed to a marriage but have no genuine feeling of love toward their spouse, right? I'm committed to the idea of the covenant of our marriage. And we're in this covenant and we must stay true to this covenant and I'm going to stay faithful to it. And that can be there with no actual genuine feeling of love and affection, right? But you want your spouse to both love you and like you, right? (laughs) Did you know that's what God is like toward you? That he loves you and he likes you? We don't deserve it, but he does. He has a genuine feeling of tender compassion and love toward you. His child, whom he has redeemed and restored by his mercy and grace. That can be another thing that's hard for us to believe. That God's love is genuine and deep and real. 
So he crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. And then finally, who satisfies you with good. And if it's not enough that he does, has done all these things, he abundantly satisfies us with everything we need to have our strength renewed. The, the Hebrew word here for you is really interesting. Does anyone have, looking at a different version that has a different word there? Who satisfies and then it has something else? Mouth. Desires. All right. This is, Hebrew's complicated. All right. And this is a word that could either mean mouth. Um, it could mean ornament or jewelry. And, and, and so, what does this mean, right? Well, basically, either one is a figure, however you translate it, mouth or ornament or jewelry, it's a figure of speech to communicate the idea of your soul or your life, right? And so, and so God is satisfying, ESV just kind of backs out and gives up and says, you, all right, instead of uh, saying mouth or ornament or jewelry. But he satisfies us, he satisfies our soul, God satisfies you, and his goodness, his satisfaction is for a purpose. What is the purpose? Why why does he satisfy us? Right. How do we know that that's the purpose? Right here. So that, right? So these are are connection phrases and words that that show you the relation between, between the phrases. He satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Why does he satisfy you? He satisfies you so that you may be strengthened. Satisfaction creates strength. Second Peter 1, verse 3 says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 16 says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. God satisfies us with his goodness so that our youth is renewed, like the eagles. And does that remind you of another verse at all? Isaiah. Where's, where's Tom Burkett? Is he around here? He's in there somewhere. Okay. All right. I thought, I, if I said the word Isaiah, I thought he might just kind of pop out. No. All right. I'm actually blanking on the reference. I think it's Isaiah 40, verse something. 31, 2? 42. 42, something. All right. We'll move on. (laughs) Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits. What benefits? He forgives, he heals, he redeems, he crowns, and he satisfies. God has done so much. Don't forget it. Yet we so often do. Questions or comments before we... Isaiah 40, 31. You guys are saying 42. 40, 31. (laughs) Oh, oh, he's blaming Tom. All right. (laughs) All right. Questions or comments? All right. In verses 6 through 14, 
David starts to rehearse God's past dealings with his people to remind himself that God deals graciously with our frailty. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his way to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And in these verses, I believe he's, he's referencing a particular time in Israel's history when they're going through the wilderness. And to get that backstory, I want us to travel back in time to a place when we see humanity's sin and frailty meeting God's mercy and compassion. So if you have your Bible with you, I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 36. Since this passage of Psalm 103 is, is one that is, that is uh, motivated strongly by history, Israel's history, let's understand that history to see what he, is, uh, what he is referring to. Exodus chapter 32. What did I say? 36. Okay. I'm getting my references all messed up. 32. I'm so sorry. Exodus chapter 32. What is happening in Exodus 32? The golden calf. Perhaps one of the greatest sins committed by the people of Israel. We just finished talking about how we should forget not all his benefits. What benefits had the children of Israel just experienced? Deliverance from Egypt, walking through the Red Sea, all these things. Well, it's been 40 days since Moses has gone up to the mountain, and the people have already forgotten God's benefits toward them. And they start to romanticize the past, and they start saying, man, Egypt is really great. What are we doing here? And so they create this golden calf, and Aaron helps them fashion it, and uh, uh, not the greatest moment for my namesake in Scripture. <laughs> and his lousy excuse, right, when he tells Moses, I, I just threw it into the fire, and this calf popped out. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so this happens in Exodus 32. And, and, and God is angry and, 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 and punishes the people. Skip ahead to Exodus chapter 33. This is after the sin and the punishment. And God tells the people to go forward, continue going to the promised land. But what did he say? He said, go forward, but what? I'm not going with you. I'm not going with you. Instead, I'm going to send an angel. Why did he not want to go with the people? Does anyone know? Because they're so stiff-necked and so rebellious that he, if he went with them, he, 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 he said, I'm going I'm to end up destroying you. So he's actually saying, I'm not going to go with you as like an act of mercy. <laughs> Exodus 33, verse 3, he says, Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Look down in verse 12 of Exodus chapter 33. God goes to... Uh, Moses goes to God at the tent of meeting to intercede for the people. In Exodus 33, 12-13, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And then you look back in Psalm 103, verse 7, we read this. 
he made his made known his ways to Moses. I think this is an exact reference to Exodus 33, where Moses cries out, Please show me now your ways. Look down in verse 18 of Exodus chapter 33. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So God, Moses asked, please show me your glory. And look ahead to Exodus chapter 34. This is where we see God revealing his glory and his goodness to Moses. He's about to reveal to Moses the very essence of his character, the attributes that are central to his very nature. In light of Israel's sin, what will he reveal about himself? He has just been sinned against in one of the greatest ways possible. Blatant idolatry. And now he's going to reveal who he is to Moses. He's going to show Moses what's most important about himself. Exodus chapter 34, look in verse 5. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but will who, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And now we'll look back in Psalm 103, verse 8. After we read that he made his way known to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel, what do we read? Verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's quoting from Exodus chapter 34. When God revealed his, his nature, his attributes, in light of Israel's blatant idolatry and sin. And in fact, this is a passage that is quoted all throughout Scripture. Numbers 14, 18, Nehemiah 9, 17, Nehemiah 13, 22, Psalms 86, 5, 145, 8, Joel 2, 13, Jonah 4, 2, Nahum 1, 3. Don't try to write all those down. Those are all references where this exact passage description, the self-revelation of God is quoted. And so in their frailty and sin, God revealed himself to be a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Let's look at verse 8 a little bit and let's consider these attributes more closely. We've seen merciful already. This word carries the idea of like a mother's tender love, a fondness. Gracious is a genuine kindness. And then the second line, we see two of his attributes. We see his anger, and we see his steadfast love. He has both. But he is slow to anger, and he's abounding in steadfast love. We are so not like God. Take that and flip it. And we've gotten closer to how we live. Slow to steadfast love, abounding in anger. 
And sometimes we can view God that way. God's quick to anger, really slow to show love. That we think it's God's anger that's quick and it takes effort to draw out his love. But it's exactly the opposite. It takes effort to draw out his anger. And it is, it is his love that is quick and available. It takes no effort to draw out his steadfast love because it is abounding. It's overflowing. And yet we view God the exact opposite. That he's really slow to show his love toward us. He's really slow to, 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 to bring, bring us toward his love. But his anger is really quick. That's not God. That is not his character. That is not his attributes. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland makes the observation that, that while we see people, in, especially in the Old Testament, provoke God's wrath. Have you heard that phrase all throughout the Old Testament? He was, he, God's wrath was provoked. You never see people needing to provoke God's love. Notice that? As if you had to do enough to draw out his love. His love is abundant and it is available. It's actually his anger that needs to be provoked. He does not wear his wrath on his sleeve. He is slow to anger. And to people who just built a golden calf to worship, isn't that good news? That God is slow to anger in abounding and steadfast love. And as weak, frail, sinful people, verses 9 through 14, which we're going to look at, is exactly what we need to hear just like the children of Israel needed to hear. Verse 9. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. God has anger, but his anger and discipline are temporary. Listen to Isaiah Isaiah 57, 16 through 18. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. And here he tells why he would not be angry forever. Listen to these words. For the spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made. We see this exact idea down in verse 14. He knows our frame and he remembers that we're dust. Why does his anger only last for a moment? Because otherwise the spirit would grow faint. He continues, Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways. And listen to this. But I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners. He started off, he shows anger and punishment, and they keep on backsliding. But instead of continuing to show anger, which is only temporary, he decides to rather heal and lead and restore and comfort. Micah 7, verse 18, listen to these words. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever. And then he says why he does not retain his, ever, his anger forever. Listen to these words. Because he delights in steadfast love. Why does he not remain angry forever? 
because that's not what he delights in. He delights in steadfast love. He does not delight in anger. His nature demands justice. He is perfectly holy. But you'll never see God being a God who delights in anger. He takes the greatest pleasure in showing love to his people. And while he does chide, and he does have anger, those are temporary. I believe verses 10 through 12 all go together. You can't take them in isolation. Verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. He does not give us what we deserve. His punishment does not fit the crime. His punishment is less than what the crime deserves. God hates sin, but he knows that if he dealt with us according to our iniquities, there would be no one left. Does this remind you of any other psalm? Anyone have another psalm that pop into your mind when you read this verse? Anyone? I'm just trying to get you to read my mind. <laughs> psalm 130, 3 through 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. God, if you would mark our iniquities, no one could stand. That's why he cannot, will not repay us according to our sins. Ezra 9.13 says this, After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this. So here it states a fact, verse 10 states a fact, he does not deal with us according to our sins. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. So verse 11 tells us, why he does not deal with us according to our sins. And what's the reason? Because of his steadfast love toward us. That's why he does not deal with us that way. When we consider this analogy, how great is God's steadfast love toward those who fear him? How high are the heavens above the earth? We got a measurement for it? I don't think we do. What's the point that he's trying to say here? It's immense. It's immeasurable. It's incomprehensible. It's so vast. Again, it's so unlike our human hearts. Is your steadfast love as high as the heavens are above the earth? Is that how you treat other people? Isaiah 55 verse 9 says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Our love has limits but you cannot even begin to measure or quantify the steadfast love of God toward those who fear him. Does this remind you of a New Testament verse that we happen to be memorizing this month? Ephesians 3, 17 through 19. That you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. God's love, Christ's love, is so vast and so full and so incomprehensible, and that is why he does not deal with us according to our sins. Verse 12 tells us how he can do this. How is it that he can treat our iniquity this way? And what's the answer? He removes, our he removes it. 
He just gets rid of it. How do you deal with sin without making the punishment fit the crime? You remove the sin. This is something only God can do. We see another immeasurable measurement as far as the east is from the west. How far east do you have to go before you start going west, right? You can't. That's the point of this analogy. Again, we're so unlike God. Our sin, even the forgiven ones, cling so close to us. We can't often grasp the fact that God has actually removed our horrible sin as far as the east is from the west. Isn't it true that the, the, the sins that we have committed in our lives will seek forgiveness for them, but then they're always just kind of right there. And we remember them really well. And it's hard to fathom that Christ separates them and removes us from our transgressions that far. So let's ask the question, how can God do this? How can he just remove sins? Because of his love. We see that, yes, in verse 11. It's because of his love, but, but practically, how is this even possible? Isn't he compromising his justice, though? It's been paid for. Even these sins in the Old Testament. Romans 3, 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness Because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What's this passage saying? God's forgiveness is not arbitrary. From time past to now, the forgiveness of sins have been done on the basis of Christ's substitutionary atonement for sins. It is only by the death of Christ that God is able to forgive our sins and remove them as far as the east is from the west. That is how he can maintain both his justice and his forgiveness without compromising his attributes. One of my former pastors said he was witnessing to a, to a, a, um, a Muslim, and the Muslim said that our God, is, Allah, is a forgiving God. And, he's, and, and he, then he asked, is he a just God? Yes, he's a just God. How can he be both? How can you be just and forgiving at the same time? And the answer is, well, it's whatever he feels like doing at the moment. We don't have a God like that. It is through the finished work of Christ that allows him to maintain both his justice and his forgiveness through the death of Christ. As we go back to, as we read earlier, we read Micah 7, 18 through 19, we read this, Who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity, passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot and he will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. That's what God does with our sins. Verse 13 through 14 explains why he treats, or verse 14, as we look at these next two passages, explains why he treats us as he does in verse 13. Verse 13, 
God is pictured as a loving, compassionate parent. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion toward those who fear him. Now, perhaps you, you have to use your imagination for this analogy. Perhaps you had an absent, angry, or perhaps even an abusive father. And this analogy didn't really bring comfort to you. Let me encourage you by reading, reminding you what we just finished discussing. And that's the fact that God's ways are not like our ways. And even if this analogy falls short in your own experience, we read in Psalm 27.10, When my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will lift me up. That God's character does not rise and fall on the failings of people. And while none of us see a perfect example, myself included, we look to the fatherly compassion of God. As a father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion toward those who fear him. And why does he show so much compassion? He knows our frame. And what's our frame? dust. Who would know this better than God? I mean, he made us. He he fashioned Adam out of dust. He knows the components. He knows the recipe. He better than anyone knows your frailty and your weakness. And while we try to display our own impressiveness, our own strength, God knows you better than you know yourself. He knows your frame, even if you try to hide it. And even when you try to mask your weakness with arrogance or with strength, God is gentle and compassionate toward you because he knows how frail and transitory your life is. Questions, comments before we move on? Justin. It has that phrase in there, to those who fear him mm-hmm. twice, almost like a qualifier. Yeah. And he's talking to his people. Right. Is that because of the covenant language that's in the... Yeah, we see that multiple times. We see that here. We see that here. We see that later on, actually, as well. Um, 17. Yep, those who fear him. And I was going to highlight, highlight this later on, but I think it's, 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 it's pointing out the fact that this disposition that God has are for those who are true believers. There's those who have a reverence and fear of him, right? And so there is... Toward, toward, toward the, the one who rejects God? Does he experience the benefits of God? The compassion of God? No, he does not. He's forfeited that. And so he experiences the justice and the wrath of God. And so I think this qualifier, I think, shows us this is not a universalism idea. It is for those who have been entered into this covenant relationship with God. Good observation. Verses 15 through... 19 expounds the idea introduced in verse 14 and again uses imagery to show how fleeting life is. It's here and it's gone. Man, his days are like grass. He's like a flower of the field. The wind passes over it and it's gone and its place knows it no more. But what's it contrasted to? God's steadfast love, which is everlasting love. Yes, and there is that immeasurable measurement toward those who fear him. We look at our lives and and we are frail and fleeting. But in that frailness, the steadfast love and righteousness of God remain forever, spanning across generations. 
Yet we try so many times to uplift ourselves, to, to strengthen ourselves, to make ourselves look impressive and, 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 and strong. And this psalm puts us back in our place. It reminds us of how weak we are. It reminds us of how frail we are. But in that, we have such comfort that God is a God who has eternal, everlasting, steadfast love toward those who fear him, a fatherly compassion toward those who are but dust. Verse 19, again, one of those verses that just sum it up nicely. You know, the psalmist has been emphasizing the nearness of God, his compassion and gentleness, and now he zooms out and points to God's established reign over all things. He is king. He has a throne. He has a kingdom. He rules over all. But I love comparing this verse with what we saw about God in the rest of the psalm. And what does it show us? We have a good king. We have a fatherly king. We have a king who loves us. A kind ruler. One who's gentle and forgiving. And as we conclude this psalm, we see, we revisit the invitation that we had before. But yet, is it just him this time? No. He's inviting everybody in at this point. At the beginning, he invites his own soul. And now he invites all of creation, both in heaven and in earth, to join in. Talks about, bless the Lord, you his angels. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts. Bless the Lord, all his works. What are his works? Well, I think this phrase right here shows us in all the places of his dominion, heaven and earth, everything where he has domain and reign. All his works, that includes us, that includes his creation. Everyone, bless the Lord. Everyone join together in one giant choir to bless the Lord for his goodness and forget not his benefits. And then finally, who's the last person he invites? Himself again, right? Repeating the first line of the psalm. As one theologian observes from this passage, his song is no solo. For all creation is singing, or will sing with him. But his voice, like every other voice, has its own part to add. Right? Just like you have basses, tenors, sopranos, altos. Each part singing their own part in the song. Each voice has its own part to add, its own benefits to celebrate, and its own access to the attentive ear of God. And so while we're all singing together, each one of us has our own list of benefits that we can praise God for, along with everyone else who is blessing the Lord. Perhaps there's one thing in here or the other that that stuck with you. Perhaps it's the forgiveness of God. Maybe you have a hard time realizing or believing His forgiveness. Perhaps it's the compassion, the tender mercies, the genuine love of God. Perhaps you're having a hard time believing in that. Perhaps it's the fact that he can remove your sin as far as the east is from the west, or that he does not keep his anger forever, or that he's actually slow to his anger. How was your view of God corrected, or perhaps adjusted, in this psalm? As we know God, it changes everything. And I hope that as you consider who God is, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, changes how you view him, 
and changes even how you walk through the rest of this week. Any thoughts or questions before we close in prayer? Pastor. Yes. Down to 20 through 22, bless the Lord, O the angels, who do his word, mm-hmm. obeying his voice, and do his will. Yeah. So there's stipulation. You have to belong to him. That's right. That's right. And it's funny, the, the angels, the angels do his word. They, they obey the voice of his word. His host, his ministers, they do his will. Okay, there's the different sections in heaven then? They're not us? Well, these, these are talking about the angelic hosts, I believe. Okay. And then, and then the, all his works, the places of his dominion would probably include us, okay. right? I think it's, it's, it's not humorous, but interesting. I heard one pastor say one time that all of creation, from the lowliest animal all the way up to the angelic hosts, when God says something, they step in line, they obey, they follow him. And then when he looks at the crown of his creation, humanity, he says, do this, and we say, no. (laughs) We're so stubborn, we're so stiff-necked, and yet God is so gracious. Justin. So we often look at words in our Bible that that we see as different than the original people. The word redeemed, and for they wouldn't have any concept of that other than like a kinsman redeemer. That would be a very, very understanding word. Is that that would probably have a strong connection. Yeah. Yeah, when we hear redemption, we jump strict immediately to the redemption of Jesus Christ. So, so we probably add more to that word than the original reader probably would have thought. But uh, the idea of, of purchasing back, buying back, is something that would have been. Yeah. Yeah, it could have been right. I think the pit, the, the 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 life from the pit. Pit is often described as death, right? So he's redeeming us from death would probably be the um, the, the 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 basic idea of it. Um, we, but again, we would probably jump straight to um, you know eternal death, sin. But but I think this is involving more than that as well. Final questions, comments before we close in prayer. We're past time, so wonderful psalm. Next week is Psalm 116. Psalm 116. So be feel free to jump ahead and look at that one before next week. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your steadfast love, your compassion, your mercy, your faithfulness. We thank you so much for being a God that separates our sins as far as the east is from the west. Help us to believe who you are and that we would not impose our own ideas on who you are. That we would not impose how we love others on how you love us. Our love is so often imperfect and so conditional and your love is so vast and free and abounding. We thank you that you love us with a perfect love and I pray that who you are toward us would significantly impact and change how we approach you, how we fear you, and how we love you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.